0: So this story totally blows my mind. It's among our most read stories on the Bloomberg today about the sexual harassment endemic in Lloyd's of London's boozy culture. How's that for a headline? Gavin Finch is financial crime reporter at Bloomberg News. It's not only a headline, it's a reality. He wrote the story, which is featured in the equality issue of the magazine this week. It's on newsstands at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg. Gavin joining us on the phone from London. I say a reality, but I'm assuming it's allegations, charges... Um, from people that you talked to to write this story. Tell us a little bit about what's going on at Lloyd's.
2: Um, So I spoke with about 18 women um, over several months um, who work at Lloyd's or in the the wider insurance market. Um, And they painted a picture of a market that is, in essence, hostile to women. Um, These women face near persistent sexual harassment, um, ranging from... Uh, comments about their dress, their bodies, you know, their, their sex lives, even. Um, someone's wanted touching, groping, and, and, and actually, you know, sexual assault. Um, and as I'm sure you can imagine, it makes their lives a misery um, and is driving women out of that industry at the rate of knots. Um,
0: Set the scene for us, Lloyd's of London. I think most of our audience knows what it is. I mean, but it's an iconic building, uh, a venerable institution. Tell us a little bit about Lloyd's of London and kind of the environment and the history there.
2: So it's uh, Lloyd's is essentially an exchange. Um, you have insurance companies selling um, insurance and uh, brokers there buying it on behalf of corporations. Um, it operates... Now, much in the same way it has for the last 300 years, um, everything was written down on paper. Uh, it's all done face to face by men uh, who sit at little wooden desks and on stools, um, and they stamp their deals with a rubber stamp uh, and scratch their signatures with a with a pen. Um, it's very old-fashioned. Um, when uh, when a ship is sunk, uh, they mark it. Um, with a, they write it down with a quill pen in a big leather-bound book, which sits in the middle of Lloyd's. Um, there are computers there, but yeah, I don't really know what they use them for.
1: Well, and Gavin, one of the things you point out in the story is it's not just about Lloyd's in some ways; it's about the ecosystem uh, that's around it. So, at this exchange, there are obviously Lloyd's employees, but there are also a lot of people coming and going, and. Part of the action happens in terms of the trading on the floor, but a lot of what happens and a lot of what fuels this, according to your reporting and people you've spoken with, happens at the pubs outside of the exchange.
2: Yeah, and just to be clear, um, from my reporting at least, um, there was no allegations against any of the Lloyd's Corporation employees themselves. Um, As you point out, the vast majority of the people that work in that building don't aren't employed by Lloyds. You know, they're employed by the world's biggest insurers. They kind of go in and out of that building all day long to fly their trade. But they work for, you know, the big uh, insurance companies of the world, Marsh, Willis, Aon, etc. cetera, um, and the big brokerages. Um, but as you point to, um, there is this uh, boozy culture where, you know, you have people coming into Lloyds in the morning, and then at lunchtime they're, they're socializing in the pubs, around the uh, the exchange um, and then they're going back into their offices or they're coming back into Lloyd's and you'll see the blurring of the line between acceptable behaviour in the pub and, and kind of what comes, what you know, what's acceptable in the office um, and you know, with any market where, with anywhere where there is a lot of drinking, you will get bad behaviour um, and uh, all of the women I spoke to um, said the uniqueness of the harassment they suffered in London, particularly at Lloyd's, um, was down to this boozy culture. It was down to um, the amount of alcohol that was being being consumed. Um, and you know, it, it's it's an anomaly in London now because most of finance it's really it's quite frowned upon to have daytime drinking, but at Lloyd's it, it's kind of not just tolerated but it's almost expected of you to. Um, be sociable, to be out there meeting your contacts all day long. And that that generally involves being in a pub, being in a lunch and drinking wine. With the
1: you can catch more of a conversation we had with Gavin about his story on our weekend show uh, that starts airing Friday at six PM Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio and all through the weekend on Bloomberg Television.
0: It's my must read of the week and, and like I said, the question I you know posed to him is just it's kind of fascinating and staggering that in considering everything that's happened over the last year or two in terms of Me Too and um, like I said, equality, parity, sexual harassment, uh, front and center that that this is potentially continuing and and to be fair these are right charges allegations folks that they talk to but uh it sounds like it's been a difficult culture, right? To and say the, the company least. has
1: acknowledged it. You know, as Gavin was beginning to say, there was a CEO, uh, its first female CEO, mm-hmm. who was uh, trying to uh, really come up with a plan to combat this. Uh, she has since resigned. Uh, the new CEO has said he uh, is committed to this as well. So we'll see where it goes. Uh, a really important investigation, and as we say, part of the equality issue this week in Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. You gotta see the show! It's a dynamo! You gotta see the show! It's rock and roll! Alright, investors wanna see this show for sure. Over at the St. Regis today in New York, a very fancy hotel lift. Maybe not always seen as the fanciest. Of no. the ride-hailing services. But there they were, pitching to investors. Let's go through the numbers a bit. Seeking to raise as much as $2.1 billion in its IPO, which would value the firm at almost $20 billion. So what's underneath those numbers? Eric Newcomer was there. He's our startup reporter here at Bloomberg, back at HQ here to give us the latest. Eric, what would you hear?
3: It was almost reassuring. Uh, investors seemed concerned about the path to profitability, which for a company that loses $991 million would seem to be a key question. And so that was definitely from the Go people figure. I talked Go figure. What's, what's happened to our world? <laughs> I did talk to someone who you know, just sort of made the point Amazon is one of the biggest companies in the world that loses a ton of money. I don't really care. But a lot of other people did care and sort of wanted to know how it would get to a place of profitability. So that was definitely a big focus. Well, from
0: what I understand, they've been out there putting a lot of revenue growth metrics and dicing yeah, exactly. and slicing it that way. But when it comes to actually making money, we're a little bit short on specifics. Is that right?
3: Right. So we got a little bit new today in that Lyft sort of secretly told these investors who relayed to us that uh, they thought 2019 would be the peak spending and investment year so that it would get better over time, That the amount that they're pouring in.
0: How do they know that? Yeah. I'm sorry. If you're growing a business, how can you say right. I mean, so that you're th- just going public saying that you this is going to be our peak, like CapEx spending, basically? Right,
3: right. Uh, and sorry. I, no, it's uh, <laughs> totally right. And uh, investors are going to have to weigh, because if they cut back spending, does that mean Uber gains market share? They hope that Uber will cut back spending? Because so far, spending has sort of been... Reactive between the two companies where they watch how the other mm-hmm. spending and then they pull back So to sort of prospectively say you're gonna change your spending assumes behavior from your competitor that you couldn't know for sure So that's exactly the right question and there's a sort of game theory aspect to investors having to figure out Okay, should, does that mean by both by one, but right. you know, ex- how do you figure out how these two are going to interact and compete?
1: And so certainly some enthusiasm, it seems, for this IPO, Eric, in part because we've been so excited for this to get out, along with many of the other unicorns. Uh, Do you get a sense of what types of investors, you know, as you looked around the room, like who's interested in this name or is everyone sort of interested in in it for one reason or another?
3: It's hard to give an exact answer, but, you know, it's everything pension funds, sort of hedge fund type people looking at it, you know. Uh, some of the people I spoke to on background, so I can't be too specific. But there'll be a random pension fund person that you'll talk to, or somebody from a small sort of analyst firm. Or, you know, it's really a wide variety of people who are in the finance world in New York who haven't been following this company necessarily particularly closely, and now it's getting into their world, and so they're going to. Well, because
1: because you, you have to think, Carol, that. Any investor worth their salt, their customer, their colleague is going to say, all right, what's our hot take on Lyft? Yeah, right, exactly. Because it is such a harbinger, uh, it seems. And, and we've been and waiting again, for these names right. to go right. public, right? right. Well, and I guess we'll know next week, you know, sort of what well, the broader – Well, market. I want to – we could push back on that because
3: one of the feelings that you have around this is that a lot of people are optimistic that Lyft will trade well in the beginning. Yeah, right? interesting. And then in the long run, will it sustain or will it be like Snap? So – You know, I've also been saying, oh, we'll know next week. But I'm starting to be like, no, we won't really know next week. We'll know in maybe 12 months, you know, once it's really sat on a price. But I think there could very well be a ton of enthusiasm in the beginning because people are paying so much attention. Right. And then we'll see.
0: I think it's fascinating some of the analysts who have already weighed in. I know there's we've got a story about, um, is it Rhett Wallace over at Triton, Triton uh, Research? Yeah, they're a
3: firm that's in, yeah, yeah, and
0: he says, you know, we see almost nothing in the filing to assess the business. And is saying, you know, here's an opportunity to be really transparent about the business. And this is, again, a company that's been around for several years. So at this point, you expect... Some kind of aspect of a mature company, don't we?
3: Right. I mean, investors always complain about this because you'll have monthly actives or daily actives. What do we need to model it? And companies play games because they they think there are competitive dynamics to it. I do sort of get the sense from the Uber crowd that they thought that the Lyft prospectus was thinner than they might have imagined from the and, Uber crowd. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. I I would think, I mean, you you know, there are different pockets of it, but it just feels like Uber will have to give a sort of more thorough accounting, especially if they want this piece by piece analysis of their business. So it's like
1: figure out ride sharing, figure out eats,
3: so that you can really value them separately. I to say
0: Uber's is going to be thicker just because they're doing a lot of different things. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, we certainly shall see. And one of the things you point out in your story, Eric Newcomer, uh, is. Who are investors going to compare it to? Is it the Grubhubs? Is it the far fetches Or is mm-hmm. it the Facebooks and the Netflixes of the world? We know we'll be asking you those it's questions over-
0: more. <laughs> it's oversubscribed though already, right? That
1: Next is week. what they're.
3: Say- yeah, that is what they told uh, investors. Yes.
1: All right, Eric Newcomer, your rock star startup reporter for Bloomberg, all over Lyft. Ah!
0: Fallen. That's exactly what's happening to shares of Biogen today. Plummeting after the biotech giant said that its experimental Alzheimer's drug was unlikely to be effective and that it was halting its research. It's another setback for drug makers' efforts overall to find a therapy for uh, the ailment. The company stock, as I mentioned, uh, Biogen, down about a third in terms of its overall value. Let's get into it with Asthika Gunnarwadana. He is Senior Biotech Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Uh, Brian Scorney also with us, Biotech and Pharma Analyst at Baird. Uh, he's joining us on the phone here in New York. Asthika, I want to kick it off with you. So, obviously, a major disappointment. Kind of Assess this. I, I, you walked into the studio. I said, "Was this expected?"
4: Well. I think people were hoping for this uh, the situation not to play out, but um, sadly history's repeated itself. Uh, Carol, I mean, if you look back, this is about probably the sixth uh, major product that's failed in phase three um, that targets the same mechanism. That's pretty far along. This is pretty exactly. It's pretty far along. It had you know interesting phase one uh, data that that got people excited about it. I really wish history you know taught us a lesson and uh, and here, but I mean. It, on its merits it did look like it had some sort of activity it was it had side effects which is indicative as well but you know the plans that did not align
1: so brian come on in here i mean if you're an investor and you're looking at this uh, what what do you do at this point obviously the answer that many people have is you sell the stock but longer term what does this mean
5: yeah, so I mean, for 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 Biden specifically, I mean, I think people really have to start putting fresh eyes on it. Um, I mean, this was a big hope for this management team. They leveraged themselves uh, to this story, um, you know, really to a lot of people' surprises, not really aggressively pursuing uh, M and A or or BD um, that would potentially diversify away from a risk of a failure here. Um, but you know, in essence, leveraging themselves even more to this beta amyloid hypothesis. So, um, you know, I. We wrote in our note today. We think that the you know the, there's a chance for this to be oversold as, as people really struggle with um, confidence and management, the, the management credibility. What are the options for this team to even do here at this point? To kind of. Uh, reignite the story. I mean, they have a great MS franchise, but it's, it, it hasn't really been growing. Uh, it's stable for now, but it's more competitive. They've had a great asset in a drug called Spinraza for SMA, but that seemed to uh, approaching uh, the peak of its growth curve as well. And there's uh, certainly a lot of competition there. So right. you know, we've maintained our neutral rating on the stock. Um, you know, uh, we think it's going to be hard for investors to, to kind of find a floor that they're comfortable with right. the name.
0: Right. I do feel like there's two stories here. I feel like there's the one story about you know all these drug makers trying to figure out a way how to treat Alzheimer's, and they've all been on a similar path in terms of a drug and its treatment, and all of them so far have failed. So, there's that story, and then, Azteca, there's also the story of, okay, so what does this mean for Biogen going
4: forward? Yeah, I mean, also to, to to Brian's point as well. If you look at the catalyst horizon that uh, in the next couple of years for Biogen, there's really not a lot that could get me excited here. I mean, there's mm. I mean, there's a SOD1 asset in ALS, there's a maybe some stroke data that can come out of a Japanese trial, but um, the, there's some multiple sclerosis data that could come out in the middle of twenty twenty. But there, this is kind of a, a kind of a bleak uh, outlook in terms of uh, really moving catalysts. So the company has some cash, you know, it has about it ended uh, twenty eighteen, but about. $2.5 billion in the bank, maybe you take about um, a billion off of that for the, for the recent acquisition of Nightstar, but now they need to start it, deploying that capital and maybe, maybe go on the road and start buying something here to really help them out.
1: Well, I want to pick up on exactly that point. Brian, what would they buy? What's for sale uh, at this point?
5: Yeah, so I mean, I think, and I think this is where there are people are, are going to be really critical of them, um, essentially not doing a number of deals that would have made sense uh, for companies that have had meaningful, meaningful step ups in valuation. So I mean, the names that are generally floated out there that make a lot of sense, and uh, sort of the CNS Neurofield, Neurocrin, NBIX, which we cover, Serapta SRPT, which we also cover. Um, Sage Therapeutics, which has got an approval this week, all of these companies have had really significant valuation inflections um, over the last couple of years. Uh, they all make sense for Biogen. You know, at this point, ha- ha- have the the numbers actually overshot what Biogen would uh, be capable of paying? Probably not in most of the instances. I think again, the issue is um, given how, how how management's performed over the last couple of years into this data set. Um, you know, will investors? give them any credibility to even do an acquisition at, at all, um, or is this a situation where you know, we're not going to see a resolution uh, under this management team? Uh, or even with Biogen as a freestanding.
0: Yeah, in and, of and I just want to point out, Neurocrine is up about 6.2%, Sage is up about 3.5%. So the expectation is, you know, these could be some of the names. They both have medicines apparently approved for neurological conditions that would kind of fit with Biogen's remaining core franchises. you mentioned, Azika, um, in terms of MS. Uh, how quickly does Biogen have to do something? I- and, and is it done this Alzheimer's it's just done
4: yeah i don't i don't expect to see uh, anything that could save it at this point I, i'd also suggest that you know the has some other assets in alzheimer's as well um, it's developing something with uh, with company asi called B- ban2401 we mm-hmm. weren't very convinced by the phase 2 data by that you know this 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 whole amyloid hypothesis is really taken a blow here so because it's
0: not the first company to pursue this strategy. Six, you're six, saying? Around,
4: probably the sixth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Maybe, maybe there's some other modalities that you could probably target. I mean, they have something in the, uh, in the pipeline that targets Tau and a couple others. But right now, I, I would uh, uh, temper all my expectations on, on what the, on what the Alzheimer's pipeline is going to do. How quickly do they do need to something? I mean. Um, you know, uh, the, as, as long as they don't have anything in the pipeline in terms of catalysts, they, this you know, is not this is not a good story yeah
1: and without getting too deep into the science which I inevitably wouldn't understand why has this been such an elusive target it's obviously a very complicated disease uh, Brian but they're not alone in in essentially failing here right
5: yeah that's true I mean uh, you know we sort of cheekily uh, tweeted some comments around how people keep Uh, um, coming back to the beta amyloid hypothesis, even after every failure, saying, oh, but this time it's different, this time it's different. I mean, frankly, it's because there's just not other great ideas as yeah. to what can cause Alzheimer's. I think it's a black box of a disease. We don't understand it well. This has been the primary um, biological hypothesis, and despite all the clinical failures, uh, I think the scientific community is just desperately holding on for, for whatever they can identify that, that, that might play a role in the disease here, and unfortunately um, it continues to be an area where investor capital just gets sucked into a big void. Right, well, and
1: I think I have to think that investors, I mean, they, they want this to be true, right? I mean, this is mm-hmm. you know probably one of the highest profile most befuddling things that we're facing as a society so many people have to deal with this and i have to think there's some emotion tied up in this as well
4: absolutely i mean if you look at what the projections are for not just cost of treating patients with alzheimer's who you know once you get it there there really isn't anything that that's out there that modifies the disease but it's not just that it's also the uh the the caregivers too so the actual financial and economic impact on society is really big. Right.
0: All right. Going to leave it on that note. Astika, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Asliqa Gunarwarana, he is our senior biotech analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Our thanks to Brian Scorney as well, biotech and pharma analyst at Bayer, joining us on the phone from New York. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg Radio. Well,
6: I'm
2: wearing my
1: That's an old commercial. That is I hope it's an old commercial because it doesn't doesn't exactly sound au courant. Uh, But I'll tell you, investors, uh, they're kind of liking Levi's. Going public. Uh, We talked a little bit about this yesterday on the eve of this IPO. And now we're going to get into it because we also have a great story in Bloomberg Business Week this week about where Levi Strauss is going next. Matt Townsend wrote that story. He's a global business reporter for Bloomberg here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Matt, first of all, I love talking to you in part because you're a good guy, but also (laughs) because you have a beat that everybody understands and everybody's got an opinion on. I'm sure you are surrounded by people giving you hot takes on what the next trend
6: is. All the time, yes, and and it's kind of funny just out in the world. Can to I just see say, see these two guys
0: or, were talking about the jeans they're wearing, where they shop, different <laughs> brands they like. For I was totally excluded. I just they were for like fifteen minutes. They were going on.
1: Uh, you are weighing in. <laughs> I, I think. Let's, let's, let's go back on the tape.
0: We're controlling the conversation. Anyway, go ahead.
6: <laughs> go uh, ahead. Yeah, no, it is fun. Uh, I see all kinds of trends and. See someone on the subway and go, ooh, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah, What's going on with that?
1: So So what's underneath this IPO? Because I do feel like, again, it's a brand that people know. Yes. um, But it's a brand that may have been kind of sidelined uh, for a while. What's driving the interest here? And I know part of it you deal with in in your story, and the spoiler is, it's not necessarily denim.
6: Yeah. I mean, Levi's uh, has been around since 1873 iconic American brand. Everyone knows brands are more valuable than ever, supposedly, because it's a way to stand out. It's a way to to drive consumer interest. Um, And Levi's has been private for a long time, since 1985. So public investors have not had a chance to invest in this brand for a long time. Um, And what I get into the story is that, you know, the big pitch Levi's is making is that we're not just a jeans company anymore. We do all this other stuff. We get into the... Point in the story that their tops business, meaning shirts, t-shirts, uh, button downs, jackets, it's a billion-dollar business, right? That's not a chump change. It's twenty percent of their business right now, and it grew something like thirty-seven percent last year. So that's where they see themselves going. Is Levi's the brand as a holistic brand, a head-to-toe brand? They like to call it a lifestyle brand, something that can fill up big parts of the closet.
0: Who's their customer?
6: That's the big question. They're well-known by people like us. We grew up with them, but they need to really start capturing the younger generation, Uh, the young millennials, the Gen Zs, the the kids just graduating from college right now. Um, The big way they're going to do that is through marketing. So they they believe that with this IPO, having the the ability to maybe issue more shares in the future to, to increase their capital, they can really do a big marketing blitz, not in the U.S. necessarily, but in places like China where they have a really small business. Right. Um, so their, their, their core customer is the teenager 20 something,
0: but is it, so is it us market they really are trying to own or elsewhere? Like I do wonder about, it's a great iconic brand and I do wonder about how can you leverage it or if you can leverage it outside the United States?
6: Yeah. I mean, the, the CEO, Chip Berg, he's talked a lot about China, you know, they make the point, uh, it's 3% of their business, which is, I mean, tiny, um, and China is about twenty percent of the apparel market, mm. so they're they're underpenetrated in China. You know, skeptic would say you've been there for a long time. You still, you have a small business, maybe there's a reason why. Um, so it's it's you know it, investing in this stock right now is a bet on that story that they're going to be able to expand beyond jeans, keep growing you know a little bit with their, their their core products, but really grow overseas and become a lifestyle brand where a kid goes into a Levi's store and says. I'm picking out an outfit. Maybe I'm even buying shoes. Yeah, they have a small shoe line they're, they're, they have right. right now. So interesting
1: too. I mean, you look at Chip Berg. He is he's a consumer products guy. He worked totally. at P and G yes. forever, his right? Whole I mean, life. essentially, yeah. spent his whole career there, yeah. and then came over to Levi's in 2011, uh, I believe. Notable. It feels like that you have a CPG guy, not a fashionista, running this brand at this point.
6: Yeah, and he took a very P and G approach to Levi's. He basically you know, went around, he tells the story about, he went around the the world talking to all the executives and people who run parts of the business and basically asking a couple of the same questions. And he got all these different answers. And, you know, his, his big point is that we needed to find out what the customer wants, you know, very sort of like go into people's homes, see how they wear jeans. What do they like? What they don't like about them respond to the consumer. So they've, they've done that by adding stretch to, uh, jeans Spandex.
0: Love a little spandex and yeah. everything.
6: So <laughs> make, take away the idea that jeans aren't com- as comfortable as yoga yeah. pants and sweatpants. Right. So that's been a big hit for them. So it's a very disciplined approach to a consumer product. It just happens to be a fashion item. Yeah,
0: research-driven. Yeah. I love the last paragraph, though, of your story talking about this guy, Willie Davis, stylish yeah. 37-year-old from Harlem. And you remind us that two-thirds of Levi's sales to, still come from the likes of a Macy's, yes. right? Department stores. And most of it is still jeans.
6: Yeah, if you go... Yeah, I went to the to the Macy's and Herald Square, the big... Uh, yeah. The flagship, Macy's, yeah. Macy's flagship. And on the denim floor, I mean... You wouldn't even know that Levi's made shirts or tops. I and mean, there's a couple of representations. It's just piles and piles of jeans, sort yeah. of disorderly and whatever. But, you know, this, this uh, consumer I talked to, you know, I spent a fair bit of, t- a fair bit of time with him. And he, he had no interest in the shirts at that point And he just knew Levi's as jeans and that was it. Yeah. And that's, that's the kind of consumer they're trying to win over. You
0: know? Well, they're having a good day back as a public company today, yeah. but time will certainly tell in this uh, very competitive retail landscape. Matt Townsend, you're the best. Global business reporter, Bloomberg News, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm
2: driving in my car. I turn
6: on the radio. Hey, How about you let me drive?
2: Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home?
0: So here we go, folks. Just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Major equity averages pretty much hovering near their highs of the session. And yes, indeed, one day after the Fed met... And came out with a rather dovish view we've got a rally underway when it comes to stocks. Let's get to the drive to the close. Ed Cofrancesco is president and CEO at International Assets Advisory. They've got roughly $2.5 billion in assets under manager based in Florida, Orlando, Florida. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you here. So tell us about the market environment, your thoughts on the Fed how did what we got from Jay Powell and team kind of change, maybe what it means for the environment going forward, for companies, for the economy, for stocks?
7: Well, I think first of all, thank you for having me, and good You're afternoon welcome. to you guys. Yeah, I think that the uh, the Fed signaled yesterday what we all hoped that they recognized that the economy is slowing down, and that they see that they see the economy slowing down, and that they're not just going to pursue rate rises for the for the sake of rate rises. I also think that the Fed signaled that they're going to try and and engineer a soft landing. I mean, everybody's so concerned about a recession, 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 and we hear all these prophets of doom. I don't see a lot, and we don't see it, international assets, a lot of motivation for the markets to go soaring from this point on. We do see some warning signs, some yellow flags out there that, that – if it were to come to pass, could hurt the market. But right now, what we see is a nice holding pattern. And I think the Fed has done an excellent job with what they did yesterday, what they indicated going forward for the rest of the year, both not only in not raising rates now and saying they're not going to raise rates for the rest of the year, but also I'm going to call a little quantitative tightening, if mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. by saying that they're going to let their balance sheet shrink a little bit and not renew these purchases of bonds. I think they said, we're going to take some liquidity out of the market that way. And that they really are trying to do their job the way it's supposed to be. First, manage inflation. And then secondly, manage the economy.
0: I like that quantitative tightening. Yeah. That's an interesting way of looking at it in terms of what we got yesterday. So they did do a little bit of tightening,
7: right? Yeah, absolutely.
0: So not, it's not all bad in terms of what they're seeing
1: in t- regarding the outlook.
7: Correct. And so they, huh. they gave us a little bit of medicine, but yeah. they gave us a spoonful of sugar to help it go down. Huh.
1: And so what accounts for – I mean I feel like we are we continue to ask this question and so I'm going to ask it to you. What accounts for – the market that we're in now versus the market we were in on Christmas Eve. I mean, the, the, it's it's such an amazing sort of tale in in some ways, sort of where we are and where we were and, and how much the Fed has had to change its tune.
7: Isn't the market, I mean the equity markets and the markets in general, aren't they a great barometer of emotion? I mean, yeah. It's just
6: whack, isn't it? We
7: yeah. sit there and it's like, yep, you know, it was all doom and gloom. We'd, oh, that's it. You know, the world's to coming undone. The world Over. is, and how many times has the world come to the end? I've been in the industry a little bit longer than both of you guys, but I can see that your experience. veterans. So you've seen, we the world's always coming to an end. Yeah, and then it rallies, and then we've never seen a market like this. It's going to. You don't understand. There's a new paradigm. Every time somebody says, "Do you know what a paradigm is?" I says, "Yes." It's just a nickel less than a quarter, right? I'm not like, quite <laughs> sure, but it's never a new paradigm. And when everybody tells you it's different this time, and it's going to fifty thousand, run. So this. So time, do you
0: think the Fed though? Could have been more aggressive, that it's a mistake though, in terms of you said, as you said, quantitative tightening. I like that. But in terms of what we heard from him, um, you know, references to that, it could be a rate cut versus a rate increase. Was he too dovish on that side of it?
7: No, I don't think, you know, my opinion and opinion of our firm is they got it just right this time. We do like the recipe that they cooked up,
1: we do like what Chairman Powell is cooking. And what do you think it will take for him and his colleagues to to change their tune? What you know, you said yellow flags uh, that that you're seeing out there. Uh, what are the ones that could go red, as it were?
7: Okay, let's. We'll start with, you know, the markets have priced in a China U.S. trade deal. Yeah, and we've been waiting. Sometimes I feel like we're waiting for Godot. If we don't get this deal, it doesn't have to be a full out trade war. If it just tensions get worse. Markets are not going to react favorably. The markets have a deal priced in.
0: And we do see that happen, actually, when things start to come undone. We do see the markets take a dip.
7: Absolutely, absolutely, Carol. And the the correlations other correlation's
0: right there, yeah. Yeah.
7: And then let's talk about the Korean Peninsula. Listen, I don't think anybody expects a real long-term nuclear disarmament of North Korea that, that we can trust, but we better keep having the talks. We better be looking like we're making headway. If we go back to saber-rattling, if all of a sudden the dictator in North Korea launches, you know, you know, missiles over the top of Hawaii, that's bad. We all know that, and we know how the markets will react.
0: So in terms of the economic and market environment, like we talk about per- perhaps an earnings recession, right, but not an economic recession. Are you in that camp?
7: Yeah, I think that's possible. I think that's real possible. Uh, I definitely am concerned about some of the other economic factors, some that we haven't discussed. But we keep hearing student loans are an all-time high in defaults. Car loans are an all-time high in defaults. Car loans are at a 10-year high in interest rates. Car loans are going out to 120 months, by the way. Hmm. Haven't seen any 110% mortgages like we did 12 years ago. But I can tell you in Florida, I'm seeing 97% mortgages. I'm just. Are you really? Oh, absolutely. I know people have been buying that. And I, of course, you know, we blink an eye and you lose your 3% equity and underwater like that. Listening to your radio show, we, we hear how the market has turned soft in single-family housing here in, yeah. in New York. Guess what? You know, I know, I know our, our senators from Florida saying everybody from Florida, everybody from New York coming to Florida, and even your own governor said it. Right. Guess what? Our housing market's soft in Florida, too. Yeah. And anybody's telling you it's not, they're not living there. I am. It's not, oh, we're not talking 2007 yet. I'm just saying it's gotten soft.
0: So are you anticipating then, Ed, at this point, another financial crisis of some sort?
7: No, but I think the warning signs are out there, and it could happen. And that's what we need to keep our eye on. And I think we need to do a better – when I say we, I think the Fed and other other people who have their hands on the lever of power, certainly not me, have to do a better job of managing it this time than we did 10, 12 years which ago.
0: Which makes me wonder if that's what, you know, Jay Powell, we talk about, you know, kind of his tone and the nervousness or at least willing to maybe even talk about or consider a rate cut makes me wonder what he's focusing on that's got him worried.
7: I think he's focusing on that economic data, which – Again, the Fed has some input into where the economy goes,
0: but what, how do you make sense then with the labor market that continues to be tight? Yeah, we could <laughs> hear about it, but yeah, and I mean, then we still keep seeing pretty strong non form payroll numbers
7: but we see job growth slowing that hasn 't turned the other way, but we see job growth slowing. And there's a lot of people, myself included, that don't believe the unemployment numbers. You know, we rejiggered how we count unemployment about 20, 25 years ago during the Clinton administration. Do you really think we're at sub-4% unemployment in the United States? I don't. I live in I live in flyover America, and I travel a lot through the flyover states. Mm-hmm. We're not at 4% or less unemployment.
1: Well, a lot to keep an eye on for sure, and it, we certainly got the sense yesterday from Chair Powell that – he and his team are keeping a close eye on a lot of different data. Ed, Cofrancesco, President and Chief Executive Officer of International Assets Advisory in from Orlando, Florida, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.